Beloved, I'm going to read the God's Word this morning, Revelation chapter 5, looking uh, from verse 7 down to the end of the chapter, verse 14. Next week, uh, we'll have a baptism, and then the following week, we'll get into chapter 6, which is a very interesting chapter. But for now, we have chapter 5, a tremendous chapter that should build us with, uh, with faith and with adoration. Listen now as I read these words of the Holy Scripture, God's very inerrant holy word. And he came and he took out to the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before him, or before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the four and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. So ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. You, you can see the excitement that, that is building up in these words at the end of Re, uh, Revelation 5. But let me ask you a question. Have you, ever, have you ever found yourself yawning after you see someone else yawn? <laughs> or when someone smiles, do you smile back? I, I remember it wasn't that long ago. I was uh, watching here in the congregation, two people talking, and one person uh, folded their arms, and soon I saw the other person fold their arms. Uh, psychologists actually have studied this phenomenon of mimicry, and they say that people mimic others when they see them yawn or when they smile or cross their legs or their arms. They, they do so because that mimicry actually helps create a deeper bond, a deeper relationship with others. Well, chapter 5 closes by describing how the worship and the praise of the 24 elders led to the whole host of angels giving praise to God and to the Lamb also. And then as the angels join in that chorus of praise to honor God, every other creature followed them in worship. Just as one yawn led to another yawn, in, in, you know, yawning, another person yawning, so heavenly praise is contagious. 
one group follows another group who follows another group who follows another group, all giving praise and honor and worship to the living God and to the Lamb on the throne. And by the way, beloved, this is one of the great reasons why public worship is so necessary in our lives. I'm sure from time to time you may have felt something like this. You came to church tired and worn out. Perhaps you came dragging because you're lonely and you're feeling defeated or deflated or defiled and, and you just not even sure you want to be here, but you come. But as the congregation lifts its praise to God, you are soon lifted up yourself and your heart is filled with praise. We, we see something of this heavenly worship in our, in our own worship here. And we ought to imitate it so that we might be conformed more and more to heaven itself. But looking again at the songs of, of chapter 5, we hear how the Lamb is worthy to be glorified, honored, and worshipped. That's an interesting thing. You, I'm sure, know the first are the Ten Commandments and how the first of those Ten Commandments clearly state that there is only but one God and that he and he alone is to be worshipped. We're not to worship anything other than God. You, you might recall, perhaps, Satan's third temptation to Jesus where Satan promised the Lord that, that if only if only Jesus would bow and worship him, Satan would give to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their glories. And you remember how Jesus resisted him by quoting the scriptures? And remember what he said? Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You can imagine the temptation. Many, many men would fall and say, if you're going to give me all the glory and all the riches and all the power that this world has to offer, sure. But Jesus resisted that. No, worship God only. Don't worship Satan. Don't worship any other thing. Worship and serve only God. Well, we've seen in chapter 5 how the Lamb was every bit worthy to be worshipped as is God the Father. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion. God and the Lamb are brought together as one. The Lamb is equal to the one who sits on the throne. Indeed, looking at verse 12, this song has seven excellencies that are ascribed to the Lamb. Four of the ascriptions of praise are repeated then in verse 13, which ascribe praise both to God and to the Lamb. But all these are repeated, are echoed from chapter 4, verse 11, which is a song directed to the Lord our God. Again, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to show you that the Lamb is equally worthy as God is to receive praise and honor and glory. He is very God, a very God. That's what we confessed. That's what the scriptures teach. He is very God, a very God. Beloved, if you ever have someone knocking at your door and saying that Jesus is not Jehovah, you can turn to chapter four of Revelation, or chapter five of Revelation, chapter four and five, 
and show them that no, in fact, the Lamb is very God of very God. But interestingly, while the Lamb here is being praised for the attributes which are also ascribed to the Father, the glory, the honor, the might, dominion, the power, the riches, the wisdom, all these again showing the Lamb's divinity, the focus of chapter 5 and all the praises that are ascribed to him flow from verse 9, which praises him for being man. For you, worthy are you, for you were slain. God cannot die, only man dies. The lamb can be praised because he is, in fact, one person of the Trinity. He is one of the persons of the Godhead, the second person, the Son of God. But it is, but it is his manhood that is the core of the focus of this worship. The Lamb is the God-man. He is God incarnate. He is the Word become flesh who dwelt among us. The Lamb's blessed worthiness to receive all praise and all honor and all glory is the fact that he was born of a woman, born of a virgin. He took on our human nature. He took our human form. And in this human flesh, he obeyed God perfectly all the way to his death on the cross. Now, this is not just a doctrine that's found here. It's found actually throughout the scriptures. But, but there's a, a, a tremendous hymn of praise in Philippians chapter 2 concerning this. In verses 4 and 8 of Philippians 2, it, it declares... Although he, speaking of the Son, speaking of the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not require, uh, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that's an amazing statement. That the one who is very God of very God, he didn't have to grasp, like Satan tries to grasp to become equal to God. Jesus, the Son of God, never had to grasp. He already was God from all eternity. But he emptied himself of his glory, as it were. He emptied himself of his prerogatives, taking the form of a human. And as a man, he became a servant. As a servant, he became obedient to death. Down, 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 down he goes. Now, it's interesting. If you've ever studied church history, you would know that there are a tremendous amount of heresies centered on the person of Christ, as you would imagine. We don't have time to go through them all this morning. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. But I will say this, that the earliest heresies concerning Christ were not focused on his divinity, but on his humanity. Isn't that something? Today, the, the focus of heresies is to, focus, uh, is to deny his divinity. 
But in the first couple of centuries, it was Jesus' humanity that was uh, denied. They all accepted him as being God. They just couldn't accept him as being fully man. In fact, the apostle John, who who is here witnessing these things in in, in this vision, John the apostle, uh, he encountered a heresy which we now call docetism. This is one of those uh, heresies that, that taught that Jesus only appeared to have a human flesh. His humanity was only an illusion because you see, God being holy, God can't touch human flesh. And so his human flesh was not real. It was only an illusion. But John, in, in his second epistle, chapter, or, uh, chapter uh, verse 7, there's only one chapter, he, he wrote, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. And then he says, this is the deceiver in the Antichrist. You want to know what the Antichrist is? It's the one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. That Jesus was not only very God of very God, but that Jesus is very man of very man. And and it was necessary for him to be both God and man. The only way for God's justice to be avenged and satisfied was for sinful man to undergo justice's punishment. You see, sin brought us into such a state of misery and death that none but God could relieve us. Again, though, only man can die. Or to put it maybe in another way, The debt we owed to God was so great that really only God could pay it. But it was a debt that only man had to pay. You see, this is a great dilemma, isn't it? How does God save a sinful humanity while himself remaining just and holy and righteous? That's the dilemma. We talked about this earlier. But you see how necessary it was that our Redeemer be both fully God and fully man. He had to be man in order to die our death. But he had to be God because only the power of God could provide an infinite atonement. And as the Son submitted to death in his human nature, his divine nature vanquished death. Second Peter Chapter 2 and verse 4 declares this, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness. Did you hear this? Angels sinned against God. But God didn't spare them. God didn't save them. He cast them into the pits of darkness. Our Lord didn't come from heaven to save angels but he endured the common curse that we endure as human beings. This is why Peter also said that angels marveled to to look into this gospel, to understand this gospel. The Son of Man suffered our infirmities, and he prevailed against all the temptations that you and I go through, but without sin, without corruption. And so... He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can understand our infirmities and our our temptations. But he also has the power to overcome them. 
You see what's being declared here? The one who is standing next to the throne, the one who takes the scroll in his hand, the one who enacts God's decree for all creation is a man. <laughs> He's the God man. Think of this. Think of what this means. The Lord of all creation, the one who spread the stars into their places in the spaces, the king immortal and omnipotent, this one is man. He understands, he sympathizes with you because he became like you, sharing in your humanity. The one who is at heaven right now with all power and authority, is a man. This news of his humanity reveals some very important things to us. First off, we need this revelation that God became man. Why? Because we're so prone to justify ourselves, aren't we? 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But here's the thing, I have, I have never met anyone, everyone I've ever talked to has at least admitted to being imperfect. No one I know has ever said, oh, I'm perfect. Sometimes I act like I am, but I'm not. But here's the thing, while people say, well, I'm not perfect, no one wants to admit to being a sinner. Sin is what really bad people do. People like serial killers, people like rapists, like people like uh, bank robbers. You can't compare my gossip or my little white lie to the evil of a serial killer, can you? You know me, I, I like statistics, I like reading things that are kind of weird and funky, but October 2023, so this is just a few months ago, there was an article that appeared in The Guardian which showed the results of a poll where 71% of Americans said they believed in hell. And that's a pretty significant number. Almost three-quarters of all Americans say they believe in hell. But here's the kicker. Only one half of 1% of that number believe they'll end up there. Now, of course, according to those statistics, 29% don't believe in hell at all, and so they don't think they're going to go to hell. So you can add them to that already small, minuscule number. One half of 1% of Americans believe they're going to go to hell. That's a very small number of people thinking they're going to go to hell. Most Americans do not believe they deserve God's wrath. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The world is filled with deceived humanity. But Jesus' humanity exposes the deadly deception. Jesus became a man only because man's position was so wretched that God had to become a man in order to save him. You might think your virtues are so good, but compared to him, they're nothing. Only he is worthy. Let's do away with self-flattery, thinking that we're good. Our righteousness compared to his 
is like trying to compare a 10-watt light bulb to the radiance of the sun. And even that's a bad analogy because your righteousness is in the negative. His becoming man shows us our great guilt, shows us that we deserve hell. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross because there was no other way, because that was what we deserved. But his humanity also shows something else. It shows what we were created to be. You want to know what you were created to be like? You want to know what, uh, what you will be like? You look at Jesus. He was the perfect man. He was the perfect, absolutely perfect man. And, and his redemption is not just to forgive us of our sins, but to make us like himself. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's the hope. That's the promise we have. His perfect humanity shows us what we ought to be. And indeed, it shows us what we will be because his divine working is in us to perfect us so that we will be just like him one day. Jesus is worthy because in him, as the confession says, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man? Yet one Christ, only one mediator between God and man. That's who we have before us. That's why he's being worshipped. That's why he's being declared worthy. But my friends, as we think about this, we cannot truly begin to imagine the great humiliation that he suffered. How completely humbling it would have been for God to become man, for the creature, or for the creation, or the creator to become part of the creation. But we're also told that as a perfect man, he became a servant. And as the perfect servant, he became a perfect sacrifice. You know, the Romans had many ways of executing criminals. Crucifixion was reserved for the scum of the empire. Now you see how scandalous the gospel is? He died on the cross as the scum of the empire. That was why... Uh, his crucifixion was considered the chief stumbling block for the Jews and why the Greeks said this is foolishness. But this is the song of heaven. This is what occupies so much of heaven's praise. Chapter 5 doesn't dwell simply, though, on his humiliation because look at it. It burst in praise of his exaltation. As he ascended into heaven, he ascends as the high king over all creation. Again, can't read chapter 5 here, Revelation, without going back to Philippians chapter 2. I already read it. Let me finish it out. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue 
will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why verse 9 says that they sang new songs. This is a new thing in redemptive history. God took on flesh, and in his incarnation, he, there was an intrusion of new creation into the old. There was an intrusion of heaven into this world. Again, before Christ, we never saw, we never witnessed perfect obedience. Oh, yes, there was Adam who was obedient for a short time, but he fell. But since Adam, we never saw anyone render perfect obedience until Christ. Christ performed his obedience without blemish or without fall. In the Old Testament, we, we read of the blood of bulls and goats, right? As they were sacrificed in sin offerings and guilt offerings. But you know something? Those, uh, that blood of bulls and goats couldn't appease God. They were only pictures of what Christ would do. How can the blood of a bull or goat take away God's wrath from guilty sinners? It pointed to Christ. In his priestly sacrifice or service, Jesus was like any other priest. He didn't have to sacrifice for his own sins. And there, the, the priests of the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice continually, day after day, repetitive work. Jesus sacrificed once. And his blood was, was perfect and perpetual and, and satisfies forever. In the Old Testament, we read of uh, a couple of men being raised from the dead. In Jesus' ministry, he raised some people from the dead. <clears throat> and yet, all those died. Yet, in his resurrection, he shattered the bonds of death. He destroyed the gates of hell. Jesus Christ now ascended into heaven, sits at God's right hand, where he intercedes continually for us. And he governs all things on our behalf and for our good. Isn't this wonderful? Jesus Christ has been given supremacy over all things, over all power, over all authority. He is the ever-glorified God-man. Ephesians chapter 1 echoes this praise, mentions how God raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, and, and, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now think of how that would bless the original hearers. You know, in the Roman Empire, the, the Roman empires took on the name Dominus. They took on the name Curios, the name Lord. And they ruled over a vast and powerful empire. Roman influence was so pervasive and so strong that anyone who dared challenge it was persecuted and put to death. But Jesus is the true Lord. And with the Father, he has the power and the riches and the wisdom and the might and the honor and the glory and the blessing. His kingdom is a dominion forever and ever. <laughs> Where is Rome today? It's long. You can go to Rome. You can walk around the, the ancient ruins, but that's all they are, ruins. Long gone. Jesus still reigns. Verse 13 shows how every created thing that is in heaven on earth, under the earth, on the sea and everything else in them, bowed and confessed to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion. Every creature 
will acknowledge his supremacy over them. Not just the poor, not just the weak, not just you and me, not just the powerful kings that rule over the earth today, but even those spiritual forces, those demons that men worship as gods, they will bow their knee to Jesus. All those rulers who terrify people with pomp and circumstance, with their claims of power, of life and death in their hands, their, their capability to conquer by the sword, all those pagan gods that, that fill people with the fear of death, they're all vanquished under his feet. And all will give a confession of defeat, blessing and honor and glory and dominion belong to you, not to me. Jesus Christ is above all things. He reigns to the end of the earth, conquering not by the sword, not by display of pomp, not by promises of prosperity and security, but by the preaching, oddly enough, of the cross. Oh, dear friends, perhaps you have been bowing your knee to some other Lord. Revelation 5 shows us that only he is worthy of your loyalty. Perhaps you have given your love and your devotion to your careers or to your finances or to your friendships or your romances or your academics and your sports and uh, pleasures of all kinds. No other Lord can give you life and peace like Jesus can. He alone has the title that is above every other title. He demands your allegiance. Will you give it to him? Nothing else is worthy of dominion over your heart but him. We were created to worship God. And only he is able to bring you to the goal of that creation. Now listen, God's redemption is not to return us back to Eden. His goal is to raise this cosmos into a new heaven, a new earth. And only Jesus Christ can do that work. Every knee will bow to him. Some will do it willingly. Some will do it by force. Now, those who come to him today in faith will joyfully sing his, his, the praise of his name for all eternity. But those who contest the Lamb who fight his claim over them, well, they will one day be brought to their knees too, by force, even as they're sent to their everlasting doom. Revelation 5 reveals the worthiness of the Lamb. And those who refuse to kiss the, the Son will be crushed under his feet. Revelation chapter 6 and following, you'll see that happening. But when the redeemed call him Lord, this is something. This means in part that he owns you. You know, verse 9 says that he purchased us for God with his blood. You know, remember how 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, because we are bought, we should glorify God in our bodies. My friends, today... I want you to hear this. I want you to believe this. He deserves far more than what we give him. I've I, I got to admit, I'm not the biggest fan of C.S. Lewis, but some of his writings are quite good. And, and But one of his books, The Weight of Glory, I think is the best thing he ever wrote. 
And in that book, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he simply cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he ends that by saying that we are far too easily pleased. The scriptures tell us that we can't even begin to imagine all that God has prepared for us in the new creation. But we get a foretaste of it, don't we? Even as we gather for worship. Verse 14, we close, we see the four living creatures with their many eyes. Those many eyes representing their vast knowledge of things. They, what do they do? They continually say amen. Amen to the praise that's given to the worship, uh, to, the, to the lamb, to the one who sits on the throne. The royal elders who received the redemption of the lamb could do nothing more than to fall down and worship. Again, this is showing us that the greatest thing that you can do is to acknowledge the lordship of the lamb, the God-man, the incarnate God who died and rose again for your sins to worship him. That's the greatest thing. When you come here Sunday by Sunday, my friends, you are entering into this holy and glorious worship that's already going on in heaven. We participate by faith in that heavenly worship even as we meet the risen lamb, the king, Jesus Christ. This is why our worship service is not a spectacular performance. You can go to some churches, and you'll have a loud band playing, I guess, music. <laughs> Lights blaring and flashing all over the place, all to do what? To bring you into an emotional exuberance. And by contrast, people say that our worship here is boring. But here we're looking at how the worship of the Lamb should at least follow the heavenly pattern, where reverence and awe of the Lamb is the center of our worship, not our emotions. You know, I will tell you something. I, I'm coming up to 34 years of being married. And I still, I still, from time to time, look back, and I remember my wedding day. It was a very blustery day. Wind was outside blowing the day before, torrential rains. But that day, I was standing up the front of the church, dressed in my kilt, my best man in his kilt, and, and, and it was a glorious time. Then, the music started. The back doors opened, and I saw my bride. My emotions swelled. But my attention wasn't focused on how I felt. I was awed by her beauty. And my friends, when we look at him who is beauty perfect, when we look upon him who governs all things, when we look upon him who forgives our sins, who answers our prayers, who gives himself to nourish and strengthen us, who reminds us that there is no suffering, no hardship, no persecution that could ever separate us from his love, how can we but fall down and worship the lamb who is all the glory? Yeah. 
I don't want to look at myself. I want to look at him. The more we focus on him, the less we focus on ourselves. And that contagiousness of, of heavenly worship will increase our awe of him. In these few verses, we get a glimpse even of our own destiny. And it's glorious. Aren't we swallowed up with greater desires to give all to him who is worthy? Mentioned just a little while ago that at Presbytery, I met with Doug Clawson. Doug Clawson, again, secretary for foreign missions. He, he made mention of the fact that many of our missionaries at the, by the end of this year will have to come home because of illnesses or families' problems. And the problem is that, and, and as I was talking with him individually, uh, he mentioned that problem with the Napark churches, the PCA, the RPCNA, the URC, the Canadian Reformed Church, the ARP, the RPCUS, all these churches are having the same problem that we in the OPC are having. What is that problem? We can't get men to go out into the mission field. No one wants to do it anymore. They're having a hard time. We're having a hard time finding faithful men to fill pulpits. Why is that? Why do you think that is? I think it's because we're not seeing the worthiness of the Lamb. We have lost the sight of his glory and of his majesty. We are so busy taking care of ourselves. He was talking about how many women, mothers, have said to him, to Doug Clausen, I'm not going to pray that my son becomes a missionary. I don't want to lose him. I don't want my son to become a pastor because I know that he's going to suffer, and I don't want that for him. Well... And the church dwindles because we have a lack of vision of the glory of God. We're going to be building a building. It's going to cost money. It's going to mean sacrifice. Do you have a vision of God's glory? Do you see that the lamb is worthy more than your own houses? More than your own careers? More than all the things that you have and all the things that you own? We don't want to suffer for him. We don't want to live for him. We don't want to endure for his sake. We don't want to lay down our lives for him. Why is that? Because we haven't seen the glory of the Lamb. We need to get this vision. Lord, please open my eyes that I may see your glory, that I may see the majesty that is yours that I may be swallowed up in an understanding that you are far greater than all the things of this world. If I was to have $15 billion in the bank, that is not worthy of you. It is not even compared. Well, let's pray. Our Father... We come to you because you are the great God. Worthy are you, O God, the one who sits on the throne. And worthy is the Lamb who stands at your right side. Your Son that you sent to the world to redeem us. And Lord, we consider your glory. We consider your majesty. We consider who you are. And you are worthy. You are worthy of all. Worthy of all. We're the whole realm of nature ours. 
That would be a gift far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. And so, Father, we pray that we would be caught up in the glory of the Lamb, that we would see his awesomeness, that we would delight in falling down before him in worship. And it wouldn't just be a, an hour on Sunday mornings, but it'd be taking up the whole of our lives every minute, every second. Oh, Lord, we pray, Lord, have mercy upon us that we might see you, that we might catch a vision of this glory that our lives may be indelibly changed. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.